0: Business, finance and economics. This is Finance Fridays, real economics for real life. Welcome to episode 7, where we try to understand the political, financial, health and humanitarian crises unfortunately gripping the people of Lebanon. We try to ask and answer the questions What has gone wrong in the country? How did we get here? And what the hell can be done about it? To begin with, let me start off by offering my deepest condolences to all those affected by the truly horrifying scenes that we saw off the blast on our television screens as outsiders looking in one can only imagine the pain that so many friends and families of those who have been deceased and injured are going through. And my words are few, but make no mistake, they are absolutely heartfelt. In fact, let's talk about that blast. Uh, What happened, the cause, the effects, Let's get into it. So, as we know, a massive warehouse explosion in Beirut, the capital city of the country of Lebanon in the Middle East, killed at this moment, at this time of recording, as many as 220 people, injuring more than 6,000 people due to the blast. Lebanese President Michel Aoun said 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate had been stored for six years at the port, which was the site of the blast. Ammonium nitrate, what, 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 what is that? Ammonium nitrate is an industrial chemical commonly used in fertilizers and as an explosive for quarrying and mining. It's an oxidizer considered relatively safe, if uncontaminated, but it's extremely dangerous if contaminated, mixed with fuel, or stored unsafely. Emphasis on stored unsafely. A large quantity of ammonium nitrate exposed to intense heat can trigger an explosion. Storing the chemical near large fuel tanks in large quantities and in a poorly ventilated facility can cause a massive blast. This is probably up there among the biggest non nuclear explosions of all time, says Roland Alford, manager director of a company that specializes in the disposal of explosive ordinance. Okay, let's be walk you through some of the latest developments surrounding this new story as it is rapidly changing day by day. So as of Monday, the Lebanese government quit following the Beirut port explosion. The Prime Minister, Mr. Hassan Diab, announced the resignation of the government after more than a third of ministers quit their posts, forcing Diab himself to resign. However, the move is unlikely to immediately lead to a clean sweep of the government, with current ministers, including those who have resigned, set to assume a caretaker role and form the backbone of a new administration. Instead, what's happening right now, there is a clear push underway for more than a third of sitting MPs to quit Parliament, which would force new elections and could lead to an injection of new members, etc, etc. All right, so let's try and put this all together. We have a port explosion, hundreds dead, thousands injured. We are seeing a public outcry protests in the streets of Beirut, a government under pressure, and a government that eventually resorts to resigning. But let's remove momentarily the factor of the blast out of the equation and then try to figure out and understand what else is fueling so much anger, resentment and dissatisfaction from the Lebanese people towards their government because don't get it twisted they had this has been as I said earlier an ever changing and developing story evolving over many months Stretching back to around August 2019. In fact, I actually wanted to cover this story on the Finance Fridays podcast. But I wasn't too sure about interest in the story itself um, from the audience. And it feels like I wasn't alone in that sentiment because if you look at the mainstream media, they weren't covering the crisis in Lebanon all that much, except for perhaps Al Jazeera. But that doesn't matter. They say better late than never, right? So let's get into the story. And there are four main facets that explain the crisis in Lebanon. First, we have the political element, the economic slash financial element, the health element, which all combined together are resulting in the humanitarian crisis that we're currently seeing in Lebanon. Let's kick it off with politics. So as I said earlier, the government has now resigned. Why? Well, Mr. Hassan Diab, the Prime Minister, gave the reasoning behind these resignations as to the government is now standing with the people against the hardship that they're currently facing. However, the people are not buying this. The government plans to investigate the cause of the explosion. have not satisfied many Lebanese as they have lost all faith in the political elite. So it begs the question, how is politics conducted in Lebanon and why is Lebanon struggling to do anything about it? Well, most analysts point to one key factor, political secretarianism or groups looking after their own interests. Lebanon officially recognises 18 religious communities, 4 Muslim, 12 Christian, the Druze sect and Judaism. The three main political offices, President, Speaker of Parliament and Prime Minister, are divided among the three biggest communities, Maronite Christian, Shia Muslim and Sunni Muslim respectively under an agreement dating back to 1943. Parliament's 128 seats are all are also divided evenly between Christians and Muslims including the Druze. It is this religious diversity that makes the country an easy target for interference by external powers as seen with Iran's backing of the Shia Hezbollah movement, widely seen as the most powerful military and political group in Lebanon. Since the end of the civil war, political leaders from each sect have maintained their power and influence through a system of patronage, networks, protecting the interests of the religious groups they represent, and offering both legal and illegal financial incentives. Lebanon currently ranks 137th out of 180 countries, 180 being the worst, on the Transparency International's 2019 Corruption Perceptions Index. The watchdog says corruption permeates all levels of society in Lebanon, with political parties, parliament and the police perceived as the most corrupt institutions of the country. It says it is the very system of secretarian power sharing which is fueling these patronage networks and hindering Lebanon's system of governors. So there's a lot to unpack there. And let's take a look at how that manifests in a practical sense. Uh, we can go back to the recent political and international relations uh, history of Lebanon over the last, let's say, 15 years. So to begin with, in February 2005, the former prime minister, Rafik Hariri, was killed in a car bomb along with 21 others. Shortly after this, Hezbollah, an Iran-backed group and close ally of Syria, entered government for the first time. In July 2006, Hezbollah kidnapped two Israeli soldiers, sparking a 34-day, five-week war, leaving 1,200 dead in Lebanon, as well as 158 Israelis. In 2013, the Syrian conflict, beginning in 2011, spilled over into neighbouring Lebanon and in March of that year, Syrian warplanes fired rockets into the north of the country, days after Damascus asked Beirut to stop militants crossing the border to fight Syrian government forces. In April 2014, the United Nations announced that there were more than a million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. That's one in every four people in the country. In 2015, we saw a crisis of a waste erupt after authorities closed the main landfill site near Beirut. Protests broke out as rotting waste filled the streets. So as you can see here, The tension and disconnect in uh, Lebanon, political tension and disconnect, has been brewing for some time, for some time now. And from my perspective, uh, from what I can see, the port explosion may have been the final straw that broke the camel's back. Now, as this is the Fun as Fridays podcast, let's talk economics. Because even before the coronavirus pandemic at the start of the year, Lebanon seemed to be headed for a crash. Its public debt to gross domestic product, which essentially means what a country owes compared to what it produces, was the third highest in the world behind Japan and Greece. Unemployment stood at 25% and nearly a third of the population was living below the poverty line. Late last year, we saw the unravelling of what some analysts were calling a state-sponsored Ponzi scheme run by the central bank, which was essentially borrowing from commercial banks at above market interest rates to pay back its debts and maintain their Lebanese Pound's fixed exchange rate with the US dollar. At the same time, people were getting increasingly angry and frustrated about the government's failure to provide even basic services. They were having to deal with daily power cuts, a lack of safe drinking water, limited public health care, and some of the world's worst internet connections. Many blamed the ruling elite who have dominated politics for years and amassed their own wealth while failing to carry out the sweeping reforms necessary to solve the country's problems. At the start of October 2019, a shortage of foreign currency led to the Lebanese pound losing value against the dollar on a newly emerged black market for the first time in two decades. When importers of wheat and fuel demanded to be paid in dollars, unions called strikes. In mid-October 2019, the government proposed new taxes on tobacco, petrol and voice calls via messaging services such as WhatsApp to drum up even more uh, tax revenue but a backlash forced it to cancel the, the plans. So this surge in discontent manifest itself onto the streets because in January of 2020, there were mass protests against economic stagnation and corruption, which ultimately brought down the government. In May 2020, Beirut was eventually forced to request $10 billion of aid from the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, to assist it out of its worst financial crisis in history. Protests resumed in June as massive falls in the value of the currency elevated the prices of imported goods like food and medicine to rise rapidly. Half the population of Lebanon are now reportedly living in poverty and this has, this debacle has unleashed a surge of discontent discontent that has been simmering in Lebanon for some time. So how has the public health crisis of the pandemic made matters worse? Well, after a Lockdown was imposed in mid-March to curb the spread of the disease. It had a two-prone effect. On the one hand, it forced anti-government protesters off the streets, kind of lessening the pressure and easing the pressure on the government. But on the other hand, it made the economic crisis much worse and exposed the inadequacies of Lebanon's social welfare system many businesses were forced to lay off staff or put them on furlough without pay the gap between the Lebanese pound's value on the official and black market exchange rates widened and banks tightened capital controls in fact i'm hearing that depositors in lebanon cannot actually access their hard-earned money through the atm systems And we're seeing prices rise further, meaning many families are not able to buy even basic necessities. This growing economic hardship has triggered fresh unrest. And in April of this year, we saw an unfortunate scene whereby a young man was shot dead by soldiers during a violent protest in Tripoli. And several banks were set ablaze. By the time the uh, lockdown was lifted in May, the prices of some foodstuffs had doubled and the Prime Minister warned that Lebanon was at risk of a major food crisis. He wrote in the Washington Post newspaper, and I quote, that many Lebanese have already stopped buying meat, fruits and vegetables and may soon find it difficult to afford even bread. So as you can see there, the pandemic has thrown another spanner into the works of, a, of an already troubled political and economic environment. So what's my take on all of this? Well, I think it's safe to say that there are no easy answers to the ongoing situation in Lebanon. However, as an outsider looking in I'll just give my perspective my uh, most humble opinions on what I can see. Let me start off with the protests and the protesters themselves. Now it's abundantly clear to me that the protests are just a manifestation of the people's lack of faith in the government's ability to steer the nation on a sustainable path to prosperity. However, with that being said, the protests for me have no effective leadership and lack of platform. And because of this, the government has sometimes accused them of having an incoherent message. One solution to this problem is to unite the opposition parties. However, if I'm a protester, I would guess they probably distrust them as well, as they have failed to hold the government to account thus far. So why would you work with them? Turning my attention over to the government itself. Well, they're in disarray, aren't they? When you have a third of ministers resigning, and the Prime Minister himself acknowledging endemic corruption, plus a population with a vote of no confidence, airing their grievances on the streets, you really haven't got a leg to stand on. What do I think of the international community's actions? Well, the international response has been swift. I believe, I think it was a day after the, the port blast in Beirut, French President Emmanuel Macron arrived in the country to meet with the leadership. He reaffirmed his commitment to stand in solidarity with Lebanon, a former colony of France, and showed the Lebanese people that they're not alone in this fight. That's all well and good, but when you have a global coalition of governments proposing a $300 million financial donation, That simply doesn't cut it when you have a blast that will cost the country $7 billion alone, according to prominent economist estimates, which is, by the way, approximately 14% of Lebanon's national output. Not to mention the economy is forecasted to shrink by 24% this year. And I get it that there are more pressing matters in the world, like which may be um, constraining the funds to effectively help the Lebanese people, like, I don't know, COVID-19. But who isn't dealing with COVID-19, the COVID-19 crisis? Lebanon certainly is reeling under this. Now, let me evaluate other institutional responses. The IMF has fail to reach an agreement with the government over a financial stimulus package to the tune of 10 billion dollars over the government's inability to structurally reform the economy but um, how are those reforms supposed to come about when you have a government in disarray and resigning and how long would the process of agreeing to reform and then implementing those reforms in parliament take I think the IMF needs to do its job here for the Lebanese people now, as livelihoods are at stake. Now, the IMF might be thinking Lebanon is rife with corruption. So if we send over this money, how can we be assured that it will end up in the hands of those who need it most and not the already wealthy political elite? Which is a fair consideration when you think about it. With all of that being said, I don't know about you, but I will most certainly be tuned in keeping a close eye on further developments, whether that is fresh elections or international actors intervening and instilling a new government that represents the people, or perhaps a less desirable but possible option Of a full-blown civil war. We shall see. Hope it all works out peacefully. Of course. But make no mistake. The saga will continue. And unfortunately. At this moment in time. A conclusion doesn't seem like it's in sight. Anytime soon. But I want to hear your thoughts. And if you want to join in the conversation. You know what to do. By using the hashtag. Finance Fridays. Well, that has been it for episode seven of the Finance Fridays podcast. I hope that you've been fully informed of the crisis gripping the people of Lebanon. Be sure to subscribe from your favourite podcast provider and join us next week as we look at how and why the UK economy has now officially entered its deepest recession since records began. Until then, this is Finance Fridays, signing out, peace.